This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. In his first State of Indian Nations address, Mark Macaro focused on unity to harness the collective power of Native nations. Among other goals, he announced a campaign to improve Native access to the polls. He called for a summit to improve policing on Native nations and an internal effort to respectfully address membership in the National Congress of American Indians. We will hear Macaro's address coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas, sitting in for Antonia Gonzalez. The National Congress of American Indians is hosting tribal leaders from across the country this week in Washington, D.C. for the NCAI 2024 Executive Council Winter Session. Tribal leaders will discuss crucial issues facing American Indian and Alaska Native communities. They'll also take part in task force meetings, listening sessions, and hear from Biden administration officials, members of Congress, and federal partners. There's also a Native Youth Leadership Summit. One top highlight is the 2024 State of Indian Nation speech. NCAI's new president, Mark Macaro, who was elected in November, is delivering the address, which sets forth tribal priorities for the year ahead. Among priorities are land and to trust issues, voting rights, environmental sustainability, and more. The event kicks off Monday and will wrap up Thursday. The second annual Missing and Murdered Indigenous People Summit and Day of Action is taking place this week in Sacramento, California. The events are sponsored by the Yurok Tribe and the Wilton Rancheria. Chairman of the Yurok Tribe, Joseph L. James, says putting on these events gives a voice to the state's missing and murdered Indigenous people and their families, which he says for too long have suffered in silence as countless loved ones have been lost to the MMIP crisis. Tribal leaders from across California, along with state and federal legislators and leaders, including Assemblymember James Ramos, California Attorney General Rob Bonta, and U.S. Senator Alex Padilla, as well as law enforcement and families of missing and murdered people, are expected to advocate during the two days and seek solutions to target the crisis's root causes. Assemblymember Ramos says although there are increased awareness and resources to combat the MMIP epidemic, they're seeing California trend the wrong way with numbers of unsolved cases going up instead of down. Officials say California has the fifth highest amount of MMIP cases in the U.S., with the majority involving young women and girls. The events are taking place as the U.S. Congress reviews legislation on MMIP. Navajo Nation President Boo Nigren and Navajo Nation Council Speaker Crystal Lynn Curley met with NASA Administrator Bill Nelson last week, urging for federal protection of the moon. The tribe has long advocated for protecting celestial bodies. Navajo leaders reached out to NASA, the White House, and other federal agencies in December, expressing opposition of a private company's rocket launch with NASA to the moon carrying human remains. The Navajo Nation had an initial meeting with officials in January, just days prior to the rocket launch. In a press conference last month, Nigrin talked about the sacredness of the moon and says sending human remains there is desecration. The Navajo Nation holds the moon in such high regard in that when it comes to our our way of life and our culture, that we shouldn't be transporting uh, human remains, ashes to the moon. And also, uh, we're born here and we should be left here as well when we're 
when we move on as well. Nigren went on to say he's expressed to the government how the moon plays a vital role to not only the Navajo Nation, but other tribes as well. Our land, our culture, our way of life within the four sacred mountains, uh, the way we grow things, we use it as, as a calendar, and our moon is just so integral in everything that we do that there should be some respect and respect some sacredness to the moon. Nigren says even though they're opposed to this journey to the moon, the tribe is not opposed to science or space exploration, but wants continued tribal consultation. The Navajo Nation says last week's hour-long meeting at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. was a step toward acknowledging and respecting Native perspectives within U.S. space policy. I'm Jill Freitas. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Vision Maker Media, envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org. Support by the American Indian College Fund, providing millions of dollars of scholarships to Native students every year. Applications are accepted through May 31st at collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Native America Calling, your National Humanities Medal-awarded radio show and podcast. In his first-ever State of Indian Nations address, National Congress of American Indians President Mark Macaro said unity among Native nations and within his organization will mobilize the power needed to improve the lives of all Native Americans. He started with an emotional, personal anecdote to illustrate how important it is that Native people tell their stories. Let's listen to the speech delivered today in Washington, D.C. Here is NCAI President Mark Macaro. Greetings, everyone, and good morning. My name is Mark Macaro of the Mokara and Grants Ground Squirrel Clans, and I'm the tribal chairman of the Pechanga Band of Indians in California. I am privileged to live life alongside my extraordinary partner in this work, Holly Cook Macaro. And, and our kids, Hudson, Reg, our daughter, Rebecca, and David. Holly and Reg are here today, somewhere there. And I thank the Pechanga Band of Indians, my people, Pechangayam. By resolution and goodwill, you wholeheartedly supported this endeavor for me to be NCAI president. All right, Pechanga. Welcome to, this, welcome to the 2024 State of Indian Nations Address. It's a privilege to serve as Indian country, it's a privilege to serve Indian country as President of the National Congress of American Indians. I strive to do so with humility and a desire to do right by our people. I also acknowledge the original people of this territory, the Anacostian Nation and the Piscataway Nation. 
We thank the Creator for bringing us here today. The wisdom and the values of our elders are the bedrocks of our communities. And the powerful voices of our youth in Indian Country embolden the hope I have for all of us. To our Native veterans, thank you for your service. I'm honored to have some of our federal counterparts here today. These elected officials, political and judicial appointees, and their staff make decisions every day that directly impact our people. Let us also take a moment to breathe in the rich diversity and strength of our thriving tribal nations that are in this very room. I believe this is a moment for hope in Indian Country. We continue to make strides in representation in everything from elected office to outer space to what, I will, to what I believe will be a historic night at the Academy Awards next month. Let's go, Lily, right? The work always continues, but the state of Indian nations is strong and on the rise. As I approach my time as NCAI president, I do so the same way I've approached the past nearly 30 years as tribal chairman, relying on the strength of our cultural foundations and inspiration drawn from my dad, Sonny. Like so many Native people of his generation, Sonny had a challenging life, but he carried a disposition that respected people and erred on the side of optimism. My dad was a state corrections officer at the youth training school in Chino, California. For 14 years, he worked with incarcerated young adults. Black and brown people were the majority population in that prison. I remember once, as a teenager who knew everything, asking how he could stand to be around these criminals every day, assuming they must all deserve to be there. He replied, son, you don't know what most of these people have gone through. Don't judge them on what might have been their worst decision and lowest point in their life. I took his wisdom to heart, as I've carried his words with me ever since. My dad was killed in the line of duty in 1988, chasing down an escaping prisoner. Now, I'm also a bird singer and a Qantas singer back at home. Like many of you, the songs that we sing at social gatherings and funerals teach us about our place in the world. Through our songs, I know the word for bison. In my language, for example, the word is uchanat. But there have not been bison in Southern California for thousands of years. We had a contract archaeologist in our valley who was dismissive of the possibility that bison had ever roamed Southern California. He called it a memory culture word. But isn't it interesting that whenever there's a construction project in our area and that requires excavation that goes down more than 20 feet, they always find bison bones. What sounds more plausible, that my people made up a word for an animal that never lived among them, or that my people date back in our part of the world to the Ice Age, and maybe as long as two and a half million years ago. Our stories and histories continue to have much to offer everyone in this nation. Our songs tell us of a time on Earth before the moon was in the sky. Indeed, we've been here an awful long, long time. And there's an unwavering spirit that has secured the strength of our communities today. We are the first Americans, and our tribal nations are the first governments. I am speaking today not only to Indian country, but to our fellow American citizens who increasingly turn to us for wisdom, collaboration, and solutions to our shared challenges. 
This beautiful theater is grand. This beautiful theater where we're gathered first opened 100 years ago in 1924, the same year Indians in this country gained American citizenship and the right to vote. But this theater doesn't look exactly the way it did in 1924, and neither does Indian country. Our communities continue to rebuild and reinforce our traditions and cultures and values. We've withstood the test of time. Long after this building is gone, we will still be here. So, while the Snyder Act was passed 100 years ago, barriers to the ballot remain and continue to be thrown up, which is why the bipartisan Native American Voting Rights Act, led by our Native American Caucus, isn't just a bill that needs congressional approval. It's a tool that empowers our political voice and the Native vote. In 2024, the power of the Native vote holds the potential to swing elections and shape history not just for Native people, but for everyone in the United States for generations. 2024 will be a pivotal year, but it's important to not just focus on this year in my first address as NCAI president. I want us to look out 10 years, 20 years, 100 years, because I want us to envision the legacy we intend to leave for our future. I believe that legacy will only happen if we continue the tradition set forth when NCAI was founded 80 years ago, a tradition of unity, of unity of purpose and action. Now, those who founded NCAI here in America's capital knew each tribal nation has its unique culture and that we are united by a common purpose, that a unified voice and collective action are the pathways to protecting and strengthening the sovereignty of our tribal nations. This wisdom transcends and connects generations. The power of our collective voice has never been more evident than it was last year in the historic way Indian country responded to the Bracking case. 486 tribal nations and 59 native organizations were instrumental in supporting the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act. Yeah. People listened, the courts listened, and the United States listened. Together, tribal nations stood shoulder to shoulder to protect our children. This is the unity of collective action that propels us forward. It's our job to build on this legacy. Now, part of that legacy is continuing to tell the stories, especially the painful ones. Not to dwell on the trauma of the past, but to learn from it and to grow stronger from it. We draw our sense of service to our people from the most painful times in our histories. The sacrifices of our forebears challenge us in the present with the responsibility to carry our tribal identities forward. Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland has, wait, let me say that again. Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland. I want to make sure we never take this moment for granted. Secretary Holland has, has held and carried the stories of federal boarding schools that are cracking open the conversations of this era. We're grateful for all that she holds, and we must commit to continuing her work. We must keep telling those stories and continue to create safe places for people to share their stories so that we may add them to, to the mosaic of our history and prevent the invisibility of this and other traumatic times in our past. 
Just like that archaeologist who refused to believe that bison ever walked the land of my ancestors, we must make it impossible for future historians and archaeologists to ignore that, ap that what happened here in our lifetime. We must continue to tell our story. So part of the work before us for both Indian country and the three branches of federal government is to maximize the potential of our government-to-government -government relationship with an eye towards the sovereignty we've always had and the treaties that we're still expecting to be honored. We face a harsh reality. Recent court decisions have challenged the sovereignty of our people and disregarded core principles of our treaties. We grew comfortable believing, knowing that some issues were settled law. But suddenly, efforts are made to diminish our tribal sovereignty. How can our world so quickly be upended? The Castro Huerta decision is a glaring example. It illustrates how foundational legal understandings of U.S. tribal relations laid down over two centuries can so easily be reconsidered. Such rulings have reshaped and at times rewritten history to justify the outcomes that undermine our sovereign rights. It cannot be overstated how much a single justice can affect the lives of millions of people. Castro Huerta painfully highlighted a deep-seated misunderstanding of tribal sovereignty whereas the Brackeen case saw our history and rights not just acknowledged, but respected. For now. This is Native America Calling, and we are listening to the State of Indian Nations Address by NCAI President Mark Macaro. He took over leadership of NCAI in November from previous President Fawn Sharp. Stay with us. We will hear more of the address after this break. The 1974 Bolt decision remains a landmark legal victory, not just for fishing rights, but for numerous treaty rights cases ever since. We'll talk about the fishing wars that led up to the decision and the long-lasting foundational shift in tribal natural resource management in the 50 years since the Bolt decision. That's on the next Native America Calling. Support for this program provided by Vision Maker Media, who envisions a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. Nurturing the next generation of storytellers with courage, generosity, creativity, respect, and commitment. 45-plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org, whose slogan is, Together We Are Vision Makers. Thanks for tuning in to Native America Calling today. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. We're hearing from NCAI President Mark Macaro. He delivered his first State of Indian Nations earlier today in Washington, D.C. His theme is unity. When we left off, he highlighted the triumph of the U.S. Supreme Court reaffirming the Indian Child Welfare Act in the Brackeen case, while at the same time, he acknowledged the partial defeat to tribal jurisdiction with the Castro Huerta decision. He illustrated how quickly tribal interests can be upended with just a single ruling. Let's hear the rest of the address. Here's NCAI President Macaro. There are no longer these linear fights where we battle, we win, and then on to the next one. Rather, they will keep coming at us. 50 years ago today, on this actual date, the Supreme Court issued the Bolt decision. 
The Bolt decision was a huge win and a key ruling recognizing treaty-based hunting and fishing rights for our relatives in the Pacific Northwest. This stark difference between cases underscores the urgent need for a judiciary that understands and honors the principles of tribal sovereignty. As my old friend Billy Frank of the Nisqually Nation used to say, and he used to say this to me, a little pull aside, quoting Billy Frank, damn it, Mark, we got to keep them from taking even one more slice of our tribal sovereignty. You can't let them do it. So, to ensure this federal Indian law, to ensure this federal Indian law and the history of our government-to-government -government relations must be integral to legal education everywhere and mandatory on bar exams in all states. Now, we commend President Biden for nominating a historic number of Native Americans to the federal bench. And we thank the senators who led the vote in confirming these nominations. We have seen true champions within the halls of Congress in both chambers who deeply understand our communities and fight for our futures alongside us. Sharice Davids, Tom Cole, Mary Peltola, Josh Brakeen, and Mark Wayne Mullen. Yes. We honor and recognize your voices in the House and Senate. Congress must fulfill the promises made by the United States, promises that have, made, that have been made, paid for, and are yet to be kept. Promises enshrined in treaties negotiated between nations, the supreme law of the land. We seek immediate action in crucial areas such as health care, housing, and the management of our lands and waters. Let me be clear. The well-being and the future of tribal nations should never be overshadowed by political agendas. We must, we, our needs and rights must rise above partisan politics. So, to that end, it is imperative that Congress make Indian Health Service funding mandatory and permanent. This is a crucial policy that will prevent the loss of Native lives due to political gridlocks and government shutdowns. We also call for long overdue reauthorization of the Native American Housing and Self-Determination Act to modernize the funding structures and address housing insecurity that disproportionately affects Native people. This is a bipartisan effort led by Brian Schatz and Lisa Murkowski of the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs. Congress must pass a farm bill that respects tribal sovereignty. It should facilitate expanded self-determination, recognize traditional conservation practices, and empower tribal nations to have greater control over their food systems. Our inherent sovereignty must be broadly recognized, including our authority to enforce laws within our own lands. Freeness from dual taxation halts our economic growth. Indian country needs are not entitlements. Indian countries' needs are non-negotiable. They are imperative, and they must be met. For years, tribal nations have been doing more with less, and often doing less with less. The, the government's own Broken Promises report demonstrates this. Well, no more. 
adequate funding proportionate to our population size is not just expected, it is Congress's responsibility. Now, turning to the executive branch, I acknowledge the meaningful changes this administration has brought to Indian Country. Under this presidency, there are more Native Americans in the highest levels of government than ever before, from the White House to so many agencies in government. We see you. The representation, this representation fosters a deeper understanding of our needs. Substantial efforts have been made to enhance government-to-government -government dialogue and to seek consultation with us. We've seen improvements in fee-to-trust processes, NAGPRA, and environmental standards. This, information, this administration has also worked with us to restore stewardship of our ancestral homelands. We saw that with the protection of Chaco Canyon and the establishment of nearly 200 co-stewardship and co-management agreements. And, and there was an executive order directly related to Indian Country signed just two months ago, the first since the Clinton era, that promises to enhance our access to government funding, though its full impact remains to be seen. President Biden's commitment to improving justice and public safety in Indian Country remains paramount alongside the need to address the fentanyl and opioid epidemic. At the core of this effort is the need to bolster tribal criminal jurisdiction and increase law enforcement resources. We must be equipped to effectively confront and overcome the, the devastating consequences of this epidemic and save lives. And no discussion in Indian Country would be complete without confronting a glaring injustice. After 49 years, the continued imprisonment of Leonard Peltier. Even the very prosecutors who put him there have now called for his release. This must be openly discussed and remedied immediately. As, as we continue, as we continue in protecting our planet for future generations, it is critical that clean energy transitions, uh, such as wind development and lithium mining, not infringe upon our sovereignty or our right to consent. Formal, formal consultation with tribal nations is the key to ensuring these initiatives honor the deep connection to our lands and our waterways. This administration has set a powerful precedent, collaboration grounded in respect for sovereignty fueled by Indian Country's unified voice. So this work continues and requires our ongoing cooperation from both sides. So Indian Country, the time for action is now. I want to be clear that as NCAI president, I am unwavering in my commitment to shape this legacy the path forward hinges on our collective choices. We must decide whether we'll falter in adversity or unite around shared aspirations that strength around the strength that has defined us for generations. From successfully expanding tribal jurisdiction through the Violence Against Women's Act reauthorizations, addressing the crisis of missing and murdered indigenous persons head on, and dismantling stereotypes to protect our youth NCAI has met its mission. This ongoing work to tackle immediate injustices has also built the foundation for our enduring empowerment. With this 80-year legacy behind us, I now call upon NCAI to amplify our collective voice to new heights. I have three key actions to announce. Today, we see over-policing 
in our urban Indian communities and, are under, and we see under-policing on our reservation lands. Indian country, is a 50, Indian country is 56 million acres in size with a combined force of 3,000 officers. This means, as I speak these words, in many places on Turtle Island, a reservation of one or two million acres is being patrolled by one or two officers. In contrast, right here in DC, the US Capitol complex is 270 acres with a force of 2,000 officers. Now, my good friend Daryl Seeke, chairman of the Red Lake Band of Chippewa Indians in northern Minnesota, has nearly worn out his voice telling the story of how their tribal community has been devastated by the opioid epidemic. In spite of repeated arrests of drug dealers, the tribe is hampered by limited tribal detention authority. The lack of prosecution by federal authorities means he sees the same offenders back in the community just days and literally sometimes hours later. He is desperate for the jurisdiction to prosecute these offenders and provide protection to his people. Now, the federal standard for officers is 2.4 officers per 1,000 people. The Oglala Sioux Tribe is at 0.6 officers per 1,000 people. They have been forced to sue the United States based on the Bad Men Clause of the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty with the Osheti Shakawan, which holds that the United States is responsible for the protection of tribal citizens, which is why my first call is for NCAI to host a national public safety and justice summit where we can engage in deep discussions about jurisdictional and law enforcement needs on all our tribal lands and address police brutality in our urban tribal communities. The injustices of over-policing and over-incarceration must be addressed and remedied. The chronic underfunding and under-resourcing of law enforcement on tribal lands needs to end. This conversation will also include the fentanyl and opioid crisis. The crisis knows no boundaries or borders, so our dialogue can't just include tribal leaders. It has to include also federal, state, county, and community leaders affected by this epidemic. Now, second, I'm announcing the formation of a task force within NCAI that will focus on the integrity of tribal membership and foster education and healing, tribal membership within NCAI. We're all aware of the constitutional amendment vote that happened at our last gathering. I want us to work through this in a respectful way. This is essential for uniting our voices and forging a legacy of unity and strength. And to our Alaska relatives, I recognize our unity as indigenous people. Our partnership moving forward is critically important. We need to have an open dialogue of Alaska Native corporations, of the role of, an, of Alaska Native corporations on the effect of climate change and rising sea temperatures on coastal communities and salmon viability, on policies around commercial fishing and salmon bycatch, and on transborder mining without environmental mitigation. Now, third, our collective and continued political engagement is crucial. Every vote we cast has the power to shape the future. I intend to convene a native vote roundtable to ensure Indian country's vo voice, to ensure Indian country's voting voice is amplified and our access to the ballot is ensured.
By the way, that's one of those things we all thought was settled, right? Our collective power resonates when we actively engage, raise our voices, and advocate alongside each other. Through these calls to action, NCAI can and will continue to champion the rights and needs of tribal nations. So, in closing, with NCAI, we must remember our mission. We are here to protect treaty rights and our languages and our cultures and improve the quality of life for all of our tribal communities. We are a deliberative body. We are a Congress, a Congress that uses resolutions to speak with one voice after hearing discussion and viewpoints from our delegates all over Indian country. There's a lot going on in the world and many strong opinions on them. I personally recognize the struggles of communities who have experienced displacement and land loss, and I condemn acts of genocide and terrorism. On this stage as president of NCAI, I am committed to working within our deliberative processes to speak as a unified voice on all matters. And finally, envisioning the legacy that we forge for our future will guide my tenure as president of the NCAI. I want that legacy to mirror the endurance of our spirit, the resilience of our cultures, the strength that has, that has defined our people for millennia. We're empowered and we're energized. Our legacy remains strong for decades to come. To justice in all its forms, and may the Creator watch over all of us. Thank you. That is the full State of Indian Nations Address by NCAI President Mark Macaro from earlier today. Let's now bring in a guest for perspective. Joining us from Ann Arbor, Michigan is Dr. Matthew Fletcher. He's a law professor at the University of Michigan Law School and the author of the Turtle Talk blog. He's also a member of the Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians. He's a familiar voice on our show. Hello, Matthew. Welcome back to NAC. And of course, go blue. <laughs> go blue, Sean. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Well, what would you think? I mean, let's start off here with the change in leadership at NCII. Um, Matthew, what do you think in terms of Mark McCarroll's approach compared to previous NCAI President Fawn Sharp. Do you see any notable differences? Well, um, you know, I'm a big fan of Fawn Sharp, and I'm a big fan of Mark McCarrow. And uh, I would say that the theme of unity is uh, really uh, a strong one. And uh, there's been a lot of division in Indian country uh, that's not really Fawn Sharp's uh, uh, problem, but um, it, it's nice to see that we're going to try to uh, sort of patch some of these rifts, and I think that's a, a really good thing. Now, this whole issue with the uh, internal task force to strengthen the integrity of NCI membership, and anybody who's been paying close attention there knows that issue. There was recently a constitutional drive to oust tribes who are not federally recognized as members of NCI. Now, that amendment did fail, but do you think there's a larger message here, Matthew, by including that issue in part of the speech? Yeah, I think it's the, the theme is unity and definitely um, trying to carve people out, um, try tribal entities out of the NCAAI um, is sort of the opposite of that, although I understand the inclination to do so. There are definitely tribes that uh, are 
probably should be federally acknowledged. Uh, at least uh, one or two in the state of Michigan that I'm well aware of that are pen- currently pending have uh, uh, applications for federal acknowledgement. And uh, the issue with the Alaska Native Corporations is such a complicated one. And uh, I really liked how President Macaro tied that issue to climate change and uh, uh, fish habitat. You know, the Alaska Native Corporations are not federally recognized tribes. We all know that, but they are corporations um, owned and, con- and controlled by Native people who have an outsized impact on the economy, on the environment, in a way that, um, you know, to separate them and isolate them out could actually backfire on a lot of Indian country. All right, let's talk more about that issue, ANCs, as well as non federally recognized tribes. But we're going to have to take a short break. When we come back more with Dr. Matthew Fletcher and his take on Mark Macaro's State of Indian Nations address. Stay with us. Support by the American Indian College Fund. The American Indian College Fund provides millions of dollars of scholarships to thousands of Native students every year. Tribal citizens of every age and experience are eligible. The deadline for applications is May 31st, and you can find everything you need to apply at collegefund.org. That's collegefund.org, or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Education is the answer. We're glad to have you along today on Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce, and we are talking about the State of Indian Nations Address delivered earlier today by National Congress of American Indians President Mark Macaro. We have with us Matthew Fletcher, a law professor, to help flesh out the context of the speech. And Matthew, before break, I thought that was interesting how you mentioned uh, this concern that the rhetoric that Chairman Macaro had with regard to Alaska Native Corporations, that could backfire. And I think somebody listening to that address who might not be really dialed into some of those issues, they heard um, concerns about climate change, but also concerns about fishing rights. I mean, where do you think Chairman Macaro is really going there with regard to ANCs? What's his take there? Well, it's, you know, I'm just speculating, but um, I think a little bit of a detente. I mean, ever since that Supreme Court case about the CARES Act, the Jalish versus uh, Yellen case, um, that there's been a lot of uh, antagonism towards Alaska Native corporations, and justifiably so. I mean, they, they won hundreds of millions of dollars when basically only one corporation actually provides governmental services. So, but the reality is these are really powerful entities. And they have an outsized um, impact on the environment because they have so much control over extractive energy. Um, they have an outsized impact on uh, economic activity because they benefit from uh, Section 8A, uh, federal government contracting, which is small uh, business set-asides for our preferences for uh, Native-owned businesses. And um, it's, they're, they're kind of scary in some respects. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you, you can't just isolate them out there and uh, you might end up and uh, that might be the thing that, that backfires. And I don't know what that looks like for NCAI membership or um, how NCAA is going to proceed in that vein. But um, they, they can't, I think it's a mistake to um, isolate them. Okay. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward for sure. 
Matthew, also the whole issue with non-federally recognized tribes, and I know at the last convening that NCA had, NCAI had down in, in Louisiana, in New Orleans, uh, there was actually like, it, it got so hot there with regard to, to non-federally recognized tribes that were in attendance. Uh, a lot of animosity there right now regarding federally recognized tribes, non-federally recognized tribes. What do you think the future holds? Do you think uh, going forward there will be a requirement at some point for only federally recognized tribes to be allowed membership in the organization? Well, you know, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, I can see that there are non-recognized entities out there that seem pretty suspect, and but I can also see there are some uh, that really do deserve some sort of attention from NCAI. And uh, I'm not really familiar with the internal politics, but, you know, tribes can be pretty um, competitive. They can be uh, very uh, uh, concerned about their influence. And, you know, it's, it's easy to say uh, that non-recognized tribes are taking up too much time. So I, it wouldn't surprise me a bit if they are excluded or limited in their membership. But uh, I hope it doesn't uh, turn too ugly. Matthew, one of the remarks that really caught my eye or caught my ear, I should say, was mandatory instruction of federal Indian law at law schools and required assessment on the bar exam in all 50 states. Did you like that one? Yeah, I, you know, yes and no. I mean, we've been pitching that idea as law professors for decades now, and it hasn't really gone anywhere. Um, I, I'll say this. Um, before you spend too much time trying to get that done, uh, you know, keep in mind that the bar exam itself is, it's a dying creature, you know, in 20 years, state, within 10 or 20 years, states are going to stop requiring it. You know, that really started with the pandemic and people couldn't take the bar exam and the states are like, like Utah, well, you can just go ahead and practice law. It turns out you don't actually need the bar exam to practice law. <laughs> but really what you need to be focusing on is getting people in the seats in the federal Indian law and tribal law classes. And so, some schools are really doing outstanding work in that vein, like uh, UCLA and University of Washington, New Mexico, Arizona, Arizona State. I'll pick on schools that I work with, too, like Michigan, Michigan State. Uh, there's 120 people in federal Indian law at Harvard right now. It's, uh, that's the kind of thing we need to be focusing on, I think. Um, and, that, you know, some of these snooty elite schools especially, I don't like snooty elite schools, but they're the ones where the power players come out of, and we need them to know enough about Indian law when they're on the other side negotiating with us at Department of Justice or state governments or, or in the federal judiciary. Snooty elite schools, Matthew. I got to ask, is the University of Michigan, do they fall <laughs> under that definition? We do now, but only because we won a national championship in football. <laughs> There you go. Go blue. All right. Matthew, also uh, a big component to today's address has to do with uh, the summit, uh, convening a summit on policing. Chairman Macaro says that uh, Native people who come off of reservations are over-policed, but yet at the same time there is under-policing on reservations, so many reservations just lacking uh, significant law enforcement capacity. Is this an area that ANCI, NCI has done any work on in the past? Well, you know, actually, I think it's an area where NCI has gotten, you know, if they're uh, an advocacy organization representing Indian country in Congress, they've done really well. You know, the uh, Violence Against Women Act, both the last two reauthorization acts have expanded tribal jurisdiction over non-Indians. Uh, the Tribal Law and, Act, Law and Order Act of 2010 authorized tribes um, enhanced sentencing ability. 
So what those are, those are things that you can do in Congress. Um, and to, to be a little bit skeptical, I mean, Congress generally trends toward law and order. But to be a little skeptical, I mean, it, it often means a lot more Indian people are going to go to jail for a lot longer. And so we have, we have over-policing for sure. We have over-sentencing and over-incarceration. But at the same time we're asking for that, we're also asking for, um, uh, you know, basically uh, less criminal jurisdiction in cases like uh, Castro Huerta. Um, it, it, you know, really harms us when we say there's too much crime in Indian country and the federal government's not doing enough about it. That allows states like Oklahoma to make the argument saying, well, then it should come to us. It should go to the state government and uh, to stay away from the tribes. And so we have to be careful about that rhetoric, but it is really, really important. There are, there is a lot of police brutality inside and outside of Indian country. We're continuing to, you need to keep working on missing and murdered all around the country, not just in the US, but Canada and Mexico as well. Um, and I think that, that this is a really good focus point for some serious and candid conversation in Indian country. Um, and we really haven't had anything like that since the Indian Law, Law and Order Commission of about 15 years ago. Um, and I think this, that was a pretty, a pretty narrow commission uh, that did great work and issued a great report. But um, this, this is a much broader conversation. I think you will see a lot of tribes, uh, tribal communities oppose more, more, more policing in Indian country, just as like you would see that elsewhere. So mm -hmm. uh, those, those voices need to be heard. All right. Matthew, uh, another issue that came up was uh, increasing access to the polls for Native people, and uh, President Macaro chose to bring that up as well. Do you think that's an area where NCI can make a difference, voter access for Natives? Absolutely. I think this is another area that is a strength for NCAI, um, and in working in tandem with Native American Rights Fund and um, the ACLU on litigation relating to uh, voter access for Indian people and inside of Indian country. You know, when I started practicing law in the 90s, nobody took seriously the tribal vote, the Indian vote. Most of, many of the people that I knew who were my clients, worked with the communities that I worked with, even some of my relatives would say, I'm not going to vote in an election. This, this doesn't impact me. And some people even say, I don't want to vote in a state election or a federal election because I don't feel like I'm a citizen of this nation. And I think that a lot of people have moved away from that perception because we have a government-to-government -government relationship with these sovereigns, these state and local governments, these federal governments. And one of the best ways to make that, to improve that relationship and make things better in Indian country is to impact the, the, um, the, the politicians that are in charge of those, uh, of those sovereigns. And mm -hmm. um, so this is a really good move for NCAA, I think. Now, he also talked about partisan politics and, and how, as Native people, we can't allow our own um, governments and our own issues to be clouded by some of those. But I, I couldn't help but notice when he when he mentioned some of the elected officials, Native elected officials, um, when he mentioned some of the, the Republican Native elected officials, he kind of had to pause and, and kind of had to, like, you know, get people to understand that we want to address both sides and, and not be partisan. I mean, uh, the country's so polarized, and I think we would all agree that, that some of the, much of that is reflected in Indian country. Do you think NCI can make a meaningful difference in, in bringing us all together in that way? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, I mean, if, if you talk to people who work in the Interior Department, for example, especially in a Democratic administration, um, 
there, there's a lot more that you can get done and, you know, administratively, you know, through the Bureau of Indian Affairs if you, um, if you work with the other side. You really have to. And uh, I think that you can learn a lot of lessons um, from, from, from those compromises. And frankly, some of those compromises really hurt. Um, but they are uh, a step to a greater, uh, to a greater improvement in, in Indian country as a general matter. So I, I, as a general, I would say that outside of, you know, places like Oklahoma, generally speaking, Indian country and state governments are, are working together way better than they were 25 years ago when I started practicing. Arizona would not talk to us at Pascuayaki when I was a lawyer there um, about cross-deputization agreements. No local government would. Um, they wanted us to go away, and they wanted us to be quiet, stoic Indians and sit in the desert and do nothing. And, you know, now they, they cooperate. You know, we, we reach agreements. Uh, the tribe has awesome, awesomely improved its capacity for tribal justice. Um, and so they're, they've become an important player. And, uh, you know, what we have to walk out, look out for is stuff like that, what goes on in Oklahoma, where you have high-level politicians who are driving a really awful, violent narrative against tribal peoples. And um, well, hopefully that is the kind of thing that is an outlier and if Indian people vote um, and continue to improve their own governments, um, people like the governor of Oklahoma will just sort of fade off into history. Let's take a caller. We have time. Chanupa listening on Keeley Radio in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Hello, Chanupa. Hey, Sean. Thank you for uh, having me on. I wanted to uh, question that attorney there, okay, this law uh, individual. Listen. When you heard that speech of that guy talking about what should be, you know, a good necessity, on either side, whether you're an attorney and whether you're somebody that's a president, one of the things he does not lack that he gives more forte to the Caucasian race by meaning he gives adherence to corporations. Number two, what he lacks is the censorship to the language being produced in any native culture. When you improve a relationship to, you know, policing people, especially law enforcement, here on Pine Ridge, law enforcement is completely out of hand, out of hand. And I say that because I live here on Pine Ridge. I have to come to Keeley Radio's parking lot to tune in to Native American Calling because many years ago, um, Harlan Macasato gave us that opportunity to fill ourselves in. And now Sean's doing a remarkable job to it, and I give him all the honor and respect to that. But until we really address that, the issue of law enforcement's behavior, not only on a reservation, but in state and federal, then and only then can we really acknowledge who we are as the people struggling to remain free. And I thank you for listening to my comment. And, uh, Sean, thank you for allowing me to come on. Hokahe from Pine Ridge. Hokahe, Chanupa. Appreciate that call. And, Matthew, I'm going to okay, break this down into two parts. So Chanupa mentioned this corporate influence, and then he also mentioned a policing issue. And we already talked about policing quite a bit, and we're kind of low on time. So let's talk about the corporate influence, because we've also had comments on, on our Facebook page as well with regard to NCAI being – uh, essentially a corporate shill. That's what some of our, our, our uh, commenters have alluded to. 
what's your take on that? I mean, to, to what extent do we as Native people need to be concerned about high-profile, powerful organizations like NCAI being heavily influenced by corporate America? Well, I'm, I'm again, I'm not a huge expert on where NCAI gets its funding or what the influence of corporations are, but I, I would, if that's the case, I would totally share that concern. One of the great things about tribal communities and tribal leadership uh, is, at least with the reservations I'm familiar with, is that outside money does not come in to influence the politics of tribal communities. It's usually prohibited. And, um, you know, if I, I keep coming back to the state of Oklahoma, I mean, that's a state, a state government that is bought and sold by the um, oil and gas industry. And if you're doing something that oil and gas supports, then you can get it done in Oklahoma. If you uh, are doing something like environmental protection, it just won't happen in Oklahoma. And that's pretty much every state, um, and certainly federal politicians are impacted by this money that comes in that keeps them going, keeps them getting reelected. And uh, I hope that NCAI is not going down that road, but um, I think probably it's inevitable for some tribes to have this issue. I mean, there was a, a Cherokee Nation issue a few, few terms ago where uh, supposedly outside money was impacting a run for principal chief there, leading to the principal chief uh, candidate dropping out of the election because he didn't want to reveal the sources of his, uh, of his, of his campaign funds. Mm-hmm. So it concerns me. All right, right. One more question. We have time, Matthew. Uh, President Macaro, he called for the release of Leonard Peltier. What do you think? How much power does NCAI have beyond just uh, making statements like that? It's, I don't know, it's hard to believe that um, Mr. Peltier will ever be released at this point. I mean, it's, it's been so long, so many administrations have gone through. I think if he wasn't released within a few years of the documentary that came out in the 80s, Incident at Oglala, or by President Clinton, or President Obama, I just don't think it's going to happen. I mean, it's a tragedy, it really is. But NCAI has every right, and Indian people have every right to keep calling for that. For his release, and um, at this point, it's just brutal to keep a, a, a you know an elderly man with health issues in a federal penitentiary. Uh, that's just the epitome of a human rights abuse, whether you think he's guilty or not. Mm-hmm. Well, Matthew, really appreciate you coming on the show. As always, you're a wonderful guest. Uh, you have great takes. Appreciate it, and uh, let's hope those Wolverines can continue the momentum here coming up. What do you say? All right, go blue. Thank you. All right. Matthew Fletcher, our uh, legal expertise on the show today. And we're now going to have to wrap it up. So hope you enjoyed uh, the rebroadcast of the State of Indian Nations Address 2024. We'll be back again tomorrow with a look at the landmark Bolt decision 50 years later. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Ah, chespuk February is American Heart Month. Protect your heart by eating healthy, staying active, and managing stress. Heart disease can run in families, so talk with elders about your family history. 
For more information, contact your local Indian health care provider, visit healthcare.gov, or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.